0: Aha, we're back, Naomi!
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to a brand new season of the Irish Passport Podcast. Over the next few months, we are going to delve into the dramatic twists and turns of Irish and European politics, and the history and culture that explains it all.
0: This season, we are going to try to cover loads of topics sent in by you, our listeners, including the politics of the pub,
1: the 1916 Rising,
0: July the 12th,
1: the travelling community,
0: and of course, the Ga.
1: And we have exciting news, which is that we have launched a new way for you to support the podcast, a Patreon page. So this is a way for listeners to sign up for regular donations as a patron of our podcast and get exclusive extra content in return. The link is patreon.com forward slash the irish passport
0: and supporting us allows us to keep making the podcast so if you like what we're doing do support us if you can and thanks for everyone who has backed us up so far over the past year today a special thanks goes out to william mcquillan from dublin who sponsored this entire episode so thanks william
1: thanks so much okay let's get going welcome to season two
2: as a political entity has failed completely. Northern Ireland no longer exists as a viable political entity. And my view is that some new way forward must be found, some new political arrangement. And that way forward and that political arrangement can only be found by the two sovereign governments coming together and devising a solution for that situation
3: which will ultimately lead ...to the unity of this country, north and south. ...and made it a little bit of Britain. But I, I have always really thought of it all as one place, Ireland, you know. Well, it's but one I, island anyway. Yeah. But I mean, I see the trouble now being that uh, certain people, you know, think that um, the British shouldn't be there. And if they are there, they certainly shouldn't be sh- uh, shooting the Irish people, you know. And I think they shouldn't be, you know. It's a bit much. You, th- you think the British uh, should, uh, should get out? Yeah, uh, you know, eventually that's what I think, yeah. That the solution is, is, is for Britain to give Ireland <laughs>
4: back to the Irish.
3: Yeah. All men and women of goodwill will hope and pray that the present deplorable and distressing situation will not further deteriorate, but that it will soon be ended, firstly, by the granting of full equality of citizenship to every man and woman in the six County area, regardless of class, creed of political persuasion, and eventually by the restoration of the historic unity of our country. Do the terrorists
2: operate from? From the Irish Republic! That's where they come from! Where do the terrorists return to for sanctuary? to the Irish Republic. And yet Mrs. Thatcher tells us that that Republic must have some say in our province. We say never! Never!
4: Never! never. As Irish Republicans, we want to see an end to British jurisdiction. Tony Blair says there will not be a United Ireland in the lifetime of people in Ireland, we say the exact opposite. There will be, and there should be, and there can be a united Ireland in our life. would still like to see a united Ireland now.
3: As for the Irish people to decide, my own view is, historically, Ireland, yes, I'm very much on the record of that. But it, quite honestly, sure. the peace process has brought about a huge step forward. There's a lot of cross-border agreement. There's yeah. a lot of cross-border institutions. There is a feeling. You go, you go to Belfast, you go to Dublin, people travel back and forth all the time. The governments are in touch with each other every hour of every day on, on different okay. issues. There, there is that kind of sense there's, there's one island of Ireland.
1: You might have recognised a few famous voices there, listeners. So that was in order Charlie Haughey, the former Taoiseach, Paul McCartney of the Beatles, Jack Lynch, another former Taoiseach, Ian Paisley, the late DUP leader, Gerry Adams, the former president of Sinn Féin, and of course, Labour's Jeremy Corbyn, the current leader of the British opposition.
0: And even though all those clips range from 1969 to the present day, All of them are talking about the same contentious question of a united Ireland, which is our theme for today.
1: The idea of a united Ireland has been a driving force in Irish, Northern Irish, and British politics since partition almost 100 years ago, but the question has re-emerged and been transformed since June 2016.
0: In this episode, we're going to lay out how things stand in opinion polls right now and what a united Ireland could actually mean. We'll explore some of the earliest political movements that sought to unite the whole island and we'll also be hearing the opinion of ordinary people from both sides of the border about whether reunification is a good idea or if it's even possible.
1: And not to worry, listeners, as politicians and some journalists lose their cool completely over the latest twist in the Brexit negotiations, we're gonna be keeping calm, <laughs> uh, we're gonna be setting out the plain facts of the future of the border under Brexit. So, first of all, Tim, you're gonna fill us in on some history.
0: And I'm actually gonna go way back on this one, further back than than you might think, actually. Because, Naomi, it's an interesting factor in all this that the quest for a united Ireland is actually far, far older than even partition.
1: Okay, you're going to have to explain that one.
0: Okay, right. Well, the the idea of national unity, regardless of religion or identity, actually goes back really to the roots of Irish republicanism in the 18th century. Uh, Do you remember those United Irishmen? Mm -hmm. We talked about them before on the podcast. Those guys um, inspired by the French Revolution. Uh, They launched one of the biggest rebellions in the history of Ireland uh, against British rule, the 1798 Rebellion. And that whole movement was built on the idea that all the traditions on the island, Protestant and Catholic, could unite together as one political front.
1: And of course that history is written right there in the Irish tricolour, of course, which is green for the Republican tradition and orange for the Protestant tradition and the white represented peaceful union between them. It's really interesting, actually, in the context of this episode, to think that an older idea of a United Ireland is actually inscribed in our flag, hmm. and in a way that acknowledges our differences as well. Hmm. And by the way, it's the 170th anniversary of the Irish flag this year, so happy birthday flag.
0: <laughs> happy birthday flag. Um, yeah, and of course, you know, the the prominence of that orange colour on the flag is no coincidence. Uh, before the 1798 rebellion, the hotbed of Republican radicalism in Ireland was actually in Belfast, and it was mostly among middle class presbyterians and anglicans
1: this is so fascinating and i think it's really overlooked like those Republican icons like Wolf Tone who was one of the, the leaders of that 1978 rebellion they were actually very high profile Protestant elites at the time mm. and if I remember it correctly Tim the Society of United Irishmen they'd essentially figured out that Ireland's internal divisions were basically its biggest weakness
0: Right yeah so, so remember um, listeners that religious hierarchy at this time had been written into law by the colonial administration so the Catholic majority were at the very bottom mostly denied basic access to education or legal representation or public office. The Presbyterians, mostly in the north of Ireland, were somewhere in the middle of that hierarchy. They had certain rights that Catholics didn't have, but they didn't have full civil rights either. And then the Anglican elite held most of the power in the country. And the United Irishmen realised that if they could just get these three different groups to unite together, Ireland could actually be quite a formidable force.
1: But can I ask Tim, why was it that the revolutionary core of this group was among Protestants? I mean, like it seems like the most disadvantaged under these laws were the Catholic majority. So wouldn't it make sense for them to kind of rise up first?
0: Yeah, sure. It's interesting. And there's a few different reasons. Um, But really, the weight of the penal laws made it very difficult for Catholics to organise themselves politically in lots of different ways.
1: So it was more like the Protestants had kind of the means and the tools available to make it happen.
0: Yeah, it was certainly easy for them. Um, But also, you know, while you might be forgiven for thinking that the Anglican elite were quite happy with their privileged position in this hierarchy, a lot of them too were actually fed up of British rule Mm -hmm. you know um, a lot of interference had largely stimmied the, the country economically and socially and lots of others in the Anglican elite were absolutely horrified by the effects of the penal laws on the Catholic and Presbyterian majority and then of course the Presbyterians themselves they were also denied several basic civil rights so they weren't particularly happy either. Mm. More than that, there was already a very deep tradition of radical egalitarianism in many strands of Presbyterianism. Like lots of dissenting protestants would have been really inspired by the American Revolution for instance which had established you know equal rights for all denominations over there.
1: It's so interesting. And so like to what extent were these groups successful during this movement of you know uniting Ireland in a way?
0: They were successful. I mean not totally obviously. Like, lots of historians will quickly point out that many Catholic and Protestant rebels eventually fell out with each other during the rebellion and it kind of descended into sectarian brawls. Oh god. Yeah, you know what can you do? But for Focusing on that kind of misses out how extraordinary it was that any interreligious cooperation happened at all, you know? Like, these were people who literally, you know, not not symbolically, they literally believed that the other group were heretics sent from hell, you know? So, like, the fact that they were working together at all really is something big in the 18th century. But let's take one good example. The Belfast Volunteers, they were part of the wider Irish Volunteers, and that was a huge Protestant volunteer army. It was formed in 1778. We're talking about up to like 100,000 people. And in the years before the rebellion, this volunteer group started to totally flout the penal laws and they started recruiting Presbyterians and then they started recruiting Catholics. And in in the north, in Belfast, they they were recruiting Catholics en masse. And remember now, Catholics were entirely banned from possessing firearms, so that was totally illegal. Even more interestingly, I think, in Belfast, the the Protestant volunteers collected up £84, which was huge money at the time, to fund the building of a Catholic church for the people of Belfast.
1: What was... Mm. Why? That was just like a charitable act?
0: Well, General goodwill and working together, essentially. They were all within this volunteer army together, so it it was a sense of camaraderie. I mean, Mm. you can see actually what was driving them because at one point the volunteers rallied in Dublin, all of them down there together, and they started demanding en masse that Westminster give Ireland free trade. Um, Their slogan was free trade or a speedy revolution. So, like, (laughs) they were really seeing firsthand, these people, how when they united up together, that they were incredibly effective. The disenfranchised Presbyterians and Catholics could have a political voice through this unity. And loads of those volunteers ended up fighting with the United Irishmen in 1798.
1: It's so fascinating, and I really don't remember hearing about this history before. As
0: you can imagine, this idea of the colonised and the colonisers joining together in a united political front, you know, that was really unnerving to Westminster at the time. Like, imagine the reactions to this speech from a man called William Orr. And he was, he was a Presbyterian United Irishman and he was executed for treason in 1797. Mm. And his speech from the dock contains these words. He says, If to have loved my country, to have known its wrongs, to have felt the injuries of the persecuted Catholics and to have united with them and all other religious persuasions, If these be felonies, I am a felon, but not otherwise.
1: Oh my goodness. Mm. It's really amazing to hear those words. I guess the nub of the challenge to London rule here is that British power in Ireland, like in many colonies, it relied on division and sectarian division in particular. So the divide and rule system. So so like what happened? What exactly? Why didn't the united uh, political front continue? Well,
0: of course the 1798 rebellion failed. In fact, it failed really spectacularly. Mm. And for Decades after that failure, it was actually quite dangerous to even speak about the rebellion in Ireland, you know, let alone try to rekindle that kind of old inter-religious cooperation. But on top of that, British propaganda was also pumped into Ireland after the 1798 rebellion, and that propaganda rewrote the rebellion as a purely Catholic phenomenon, as a kind of Catholic versus Protestant thing, which is you know, very ironic considering it was the exact opposite. Um <laughs> References to the huge, big Protestant insurrections in the north, especially in County Antrim and in County Down, they were carefully ignored in all this propaganda. And in time, they were largely written out of history for a long time.
1: It seems really sad because it seems like there was this whole generation who managed to put their differences aside and work together, and they they were just forgotten. And, Mm. you know, these old divisions came back in force. By the time we come round to the 20th century, There was a huge gap between these pro-Union Protestants in the North and the pro-Independence Catholics in the South.
0: Right, sure. So if we skip forward to about 1914, uh, at that point Britain was introducing a Home Rule Bill, which would have granted Ireland a regional devolved parliament, a little bit like what Scotland has now. But that Home Rule Bill was so strongly rejected uh, by Protestant Unionists in the North that it was revised in 1920 to create two devolved parliaments. Hmm. There would there would have been one for the Protestant North and there would have been another one for the Catholic South. And that Northern Territory was going to be called Northern Ireland and the rest of the island would have been called Southern Ireland.
1: Okay, so even under Home Rule, there still wouldn't have been a United Ireland. The hmm. island would have become like two constituent parts of the UK, a bit like the, if there were two Wales or something like mm-hmm, that. Sure, yeah. um, so what actually happened, of course, is that Northern Ireland got their Home Rule Parliament, Um, But in the South, things took a bit of a different turn.
0: For sure, yeah. So as many uh, of our listeners will probably know already, uh, before Home Rule could ever be enacted, there was a huge big Republican rebellion in 1916. And in the wake of that rebellion, for many people, Home Rule just wasn't good enough anymore. And a lot of the population in the South wanted full independence. Mm. So this can be seen, especially in in the 1918 general election, where almost all Irish constituencies outside the Protestant North voted for the Republican Sinn Féin party. And they were advocating a total breakaway from the UK.
1: And we know what happened next, partition.
0: Right, so in 1922, the territory that was known as Southern Ireland for (laughs) less than a year, it broke away and became the Irish Free State, leaving the UK entirely. And later on, of course, that same territory became the Republic of Ireland and left the Commonwealth too.
1: So I guess this made the dream of a united Ireland much more complicated, right? Because to Unionists in the North, Joining this breakaway radical republic, um, that became quite a scary, fearful proposition because it, mm. it was seen as very Catholic dominated and, and hostile to Protestants. And in the Republic, Northern Ireland was seen as an occupied territory. And it was kind of reflected that way in uh, de Valera's constitution in, in 1937, where it's described as part of the Republic's national territory.
0: Yeah, and that's a that's a really... An- interesting insight I think into how the Republic has often viewed Irish unification in the last century anyway like in the kind of devil era mindset there already was a united ireland in spirit it was just waiting to be ratified legally
1: so in the in the more recent violence from 1968 to 1998 the idea of a united ireland took on a lot new dimensions so in the context of the catholic civil rights marches which kicked off the troubles in the 60s a united ireland this would have meant equal rights for them for catholics in the north and it also would have ended the sectarian system of protestant unionist governance there
0: sure a, a lot A lot of the tension between Unionists and Nationalists in the North at that time stemmed from a fear among Unionists that a United Ireland was maybe imminent Mm. and that they had to do everything in their power to resist it happening Mm. and to a large degree really that's what the suppression of Catholic civil rights in Northern Ireland was about during the 20th century. It was trying to ensure that Nationalists didn't become a viable political force and couldn't push the Unionists into a United Ireland against their will.
1: We have to say as well that there's something to their fears of this Catholic-dominated South, because the Catholic Church did become hugely dominant in the republic and in a way it could it was able to because the way that partition happened left this massive catholic majority majority in the territory and the the state was very weak and needed all the help it could get in the in the early years so it handed the church an enormous role in education and healthcare and we're still dealing with the legacy of that today so you can imagine that even for moderate protestants in the north the idea of a united Ireland could have been pretty un- an unappealing prospect.
0: Yeah, right. And uh, I mean, that goes on really until relatively recently. Uh, there was a referendum held in Northern Ireland in 1973, which asked whether Northern Ireland should leave the UK and join the Republic. but. It turned into a bit of a farce, actually, pretty quickly, because at that time, Catholic votes were still being systematically manipulated through gerrymandering, Mm. so there would have been no way that it could have passed, really. Uh, So nationalists had actually boycotted that referendum almost entirely, and 98% of the voters chose to stay in the UK.
1: You can imagine in those years how that horrible, intimate inter-community violence uh, of the war really would have polarized people on both sides and soured the whole question of you know the constitutional status of northern ireland for loads of people like loads of people just got sick to death of of the whole issue
0: yeah absolutely
1: so what happened in 1998 with this massive sea change and this was the good friday agreement so it was the result of huge efforts diplomacy and compromise on both sides that resulted in this quite remarkable agreement that mostly ended the violence in the province and a key thing was that both the UK and Ireland accepted Northern Ireland's status as part of the UK. So Ireland stopped claiming it as national territory as it had before. And everyone agreed that Northern Ireland's fate was in the hands of the people there. It was in the hands of voters. So it could mm-hmm. leave the UK if it decided to democratically. Uh,
0: yeah. And I, I suppose what's interesting about the decades that followed the Good Friday Agreement, that's the last 20 years, um, is that In many ways a united Ireland seemed less relevant to a lot of people. Like, it became significantly less idealised by nationalists and it became significantly less threatening to unionists because in the absence of a united Ireland for the last 20 years the Good Friday Agreement had kind of opened the door to a united Ireland island of the two parts
1: and here's where the eu comes in and has such an important role because of course this agreement presumes continuing joint membership uh, Mm. which allows a free movement and free trade north and south and the eu also invested into the regeneration of the border region and into cross-border projects Mm. and even though northern ireland was in the uk because there was an invisible border people could kind of ignore that if they wanted to and it could cooperate with the republic for the mutual good of both sides on all sorts of things you know like uh, electricity infrastructure and health care and there was a huge body of regulatory law which was the same on both sides of the border which is really important particularly in things like agriculture which is a major local industry and completely interwoven across the border
0: yeah absolutely and in terms of identity because of the good friday agreement and the eu free movement, nationalists could live in Northern Ireland and accept it as a UK territory, while at the same time openly identifying as Irish citizens and at the same time Protestants could see the Republic participating in the administration of the North while also being assured that it respected their identity as UK citizens.
1: I've heard from people from the North as well who've told me that, um, that the EU was quite helpful in providing this overarching identity as well because it made Northern Ireland just another little piece of the uh, European puzzle um, and not just kind of limited to these narrow cultural significance of British and Irish but they became equals among you know Italians and French and Spanish and Polish and so on and after all the EU began as a peace project you know to stop countries like France and Germany going to war again so the idea was you know if they could put aside their differences. Well, Northern Ireland maybe could too. So in the context of that, United Ireland was just much less pressing as a question. And there could be a vote on it, you know, at some point if people wanted, but there was an enormous urgency. And in the meantime, things were improving.
0: Um- Till now.
1: Until now.
0: Yes, the, the Brexit vote, which was put into motion in Article 50 about this time last year when we started the podcast, Naomi, mm-hmm. um, that threw all of this into upheaval.
1: Yes, and it was really obvious to plenty of people on the island of Ireland, um, but Brexit campaigners ignored or played down the implications for Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement right deeply into the negotiations with the EU until very recently. And they even some of them continue to do so.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how is a United Ireland being viewed differently now?
1: Okay, so talk around a United Ireland was transformed by Brexit. On a number of levels. So, for one thing, Brexit—it's quite an English phenomenon. So, the majority in Northern Ireland voted against it, and because there's such huge implications for Northern Ireland, they were ignored. And the will of the people—you know—it doesn't matter. That—that that tells anyone who has any qualms about British rule there that oh, maybe you know the people aren't really looking after your best interests after all. And there is this principle of democratic consent around the fate and status of Northern Ireland in the Good Friday Agreement. That, for many people, kind of Brexit—you know steamrolls over.
0: So for the people who identified as Irish, for example, but who were happy enough with the status quo, this could change the arithmetic for them now.
1: For them and for others too, which we'll see in the polls that I'm going to get on to later. But essentially, you know, the status quo had meant stability and suddenly it doesn't really anymore. The other enormously important factor is just the practical implications of the prospect of a border re-emerging. So the invisible border was hugely, it was absolutely critical for peace mm. because it allowed people to ignore the whole constitutional question and just go about their lives without really thinking about it. So mm. introducing any kinds of checks on projects or people on the border, it immediately poses a huge inconvenience to people and it's antagonizing. Like we're we're talking about a massively integrated border which has people moving across it all the time and their daily lives are just woven either side of it and there's like 300 different roads crossing it. Mm. We just can't underestimate the impracticality of introducing diverging regulations on either side or the risk to the peace there as well. Because border infrastructure would be an immediate target for those and, you know, there are some of them who, op- who opposed the idea of a border and never accepted the peace in the first place. This is a region which has active paramilitaries on both sides. There's a risk of setting off something that could spiral.
0: It's the terrible bringing of us back to the very beginning of the troubles. Of course, in the 1950s and 60s, the border was the first target really of the old IRA when, when all the, these troubles began to kick off. But so how are people responding right now?
1: well the government of ireland saw this risk early on and reacted to it so during the brexit campaign it was already working out contingencies and what it needed to do just in case it passed as soon as it was clear that brexit had passed dublin began a huge effort of shuttle diplomacy so basically sending mm. delegations to every eu member at least once to explain the border situation and the challenges for the island and this really paid off quite quickly because enda kenny the last he uh, got an agreement from the eu that Northern Ireland could automatically be in the EU if it voted for a United Ireland, which is like called the East Germany precedent. And, and that's something that got the words United Ireland on the front page of the Financial Times, which wasn't something I thought I would see anytime soon.
0: In one way, there has been a step taken towards United Ireland in the context of Brexit there.
1: I mean, you know, even if it doesn't mean anything, it's just talking about a potential future, you know, scenario. Just that bringing of that language of a United Ireland back into the norm, you know, into kind of mm. currency. That was a big change, you know. And that was just the beginning. So immediately afterwards, there was a leadership campaign to replace Medicaid Kenny as Taoiseach, and Simon Coveney, who was one of the candidates, his tagline for his campaign was uniting Ireland, and that's not a mm. coincidence. And he spoke mm. openly about his hopes for a united Ireland. And of course, you know, Leo Varadkar, his rival, won. And Simon Co- Coveney is now foreign minister. But this was, you know, mood music that was really different <laughs> from the precedent, like the preceding years, because of course, Fine Gael are far from raving Republicans, you know? <laughs>
0: Yeah, right. Mood, mood music indeed. Um, but like, does mood music as it is, does it really matter what Leo Varadkar, Simon Coveney are, are saying to get elected?
1: I mean, it, it does in the sense that it has the effect of shifting the political norm. So essentially almost everyone in Irish politics supports the United Ireland in theory. But it was, wasn't very fashionable to talk about it. Sinn Féin were going to talk about it and basically no one else. But now the issue is being reclaimed by the centre ground. And it's like Brexit gave the question of United Ireland political momentum.
0: I suppose for Sinn Féin then, which are the Republican left party, this must seem like a golden opportunity. Like everyone in the centre now is playing catch up with what they've been saying for years.
1: Perhaps it does. Or perhaps they feel like their thing is being taken away. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, sure. but, but in the run up to Christmas, when I was um, walking around Dublin city centre. I noticed the posters had come up on the street lamps. They were a poster which said towards a united Ireland, so this was irresistible. Oh. I had to go along. So let's hear what they had to say. It was a cold winter night in central Dublin, and it was standing room only upstairs at Wynne's Hotel. This was a public meeting with Gerry Adams, the outgoing president of Sinn Féin, who rose from being the public face of republicanism during the IRA's bombing campaign to helping forge the peace and who led Sinn Féin's transformation into a political force in Northern Ireland and in the Republic.
3: So we have
4: a a historic task to fulfil and we follow in the footsteps of heroes and heroines, facing and
2: moving forward united Determined, paternal gathering of activists to achieve our goal of United Ireland and a real republic.
1: After the talk, I mingled among the crowd to chat to people about why it was that a United Ireland was important to them and when they expected it would happen. I myself never once mentioned the word Brexit but almost everyone I spoke to brought it up.
5: I'm a Welshman, born and bred in Wales. I've been in Ireland 17 years. And, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've seen, obviously, the troubles in Northern Ireland throughout the years, you know. Uh, myself and a lot of Irish, uh, Welsh people think that it should be a united Ireland. Ireland should belong to the Irish people, and it should all be part of the republic. And, and I think that if you went to Wales and talked to the people, they would be saying the same thing.
1: Do you think it's going to happen?
5: I think it will happen. How how soon, I don't know. Maybe with um, what's happening now with the Brexit and everything else, it could come sooner than later. Hopefully it will. I think it's important to have just fairness and equality for everyone who lives on this island. It almost seems obscene that there's a divide. It doesn't make sense to me why everyone here can't have the same rights. For example, in Northern Ireland, they don't have marriage equality. And it seems obscene to me how you walk ten foot across a border and they just don't have the same rights. So that that essentially is why it matters so much to me. Wild guess. United Ireland, how long would you give it? Maybe within the next five, six years. Six. I think there's a big shift in the way politics in Ireland, so hopefully now that's where I'll be heading. Um, my name is Cormac Begley. I'm a final year student in Trinity College, Dublin and I'm studying psychology.
1: Is a United Ireland something you'd, you'd be in favour of?
5: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm from a border community, Drummond T, um, just a couple of miles north of the border in South Armagh and I see every day the consequences of partition. Um, it's been a disaster, a social, economic and political failure so I absolutely welcome United Ireland with open arms. It's the best step we can take as a country.
1: If you were to explain to someone international why it's still quite a common hope. How would you explain it?
5: Well, there's two strands to it. One is the historical aspect that um, British rule in Ireland is based upon colonialism, imperialism and partition. It's fundamentally undemocratic. But on a more practical level, it affects people's everyday lives, It affects people's travels, their rights. There's a currency border if we have to exchange from pounds to euros. I'm from the north, but studying in the republic my life depends on the exchange rate, which isn't great right now, unfortunately, for me. It's just a matter of historical justice, but also in making real positive changes people's lives. The current way of partition right now doesn't benefit anyone, and everyone would benefit from having United Ireland.
1: How long would you give it, if you were to guess?
5: Oh, I mean, I would like it to be immediately. <laughs> I'd like it to be yesterday, in fact. But realistically, looking at the trends and looking at the polling, I'd say we could have a border poll within the next five to ten years, and, and United Ireland shortly after, I would say.
2: I'm a jolly gall girl, girl. My dad was uh, Kerry. eleven county, in Clowney, Kilty, West Cork. This is the island of Ireland. 32 counties should always have been. And I'm a firm, absolute passionate believer in United Ireland. I think, it well, it has to change. We have to change. And I think Brexit is going to be devastating. But I think it might be, in some ways, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger.
3: Uh, my name is Huey. I work in security and I'm over 50.
1: Why is a United Ireland something that you want?
3: Because it's your country. Bluntridge is the British style of the country, you know what I mean? And they've divided it and partitioned it. With the help of the, the southern government as well, they've kept the partition going. Economically, there's no point in having two health systems and two of everything, you know what I mean? For such a small country, it's pretty silly, you know what I mean? You try and ask the people up the north of Ireland. Like, there's a lot of them who like want to be part of Britain, but there's also a hell of a lot of them want to be part of the Republic of Ireland as well. You only really want to be in a, one United Ireland, you know. So, like, you have to take their view into consideration as well. And if you ask the vast majority of people in Britain where they'd like, they'd say, like, "Give it back." You know what I mean? We don't want it. You know what I mean?
1: So, if you were to guess, how many years would you give us United Ireland?
3: Um, I don't know. I I think now this Brexit thing now might speed it up. I say we'll probably have to wait till after Brexit and see what happens. And when the, when the unionist farmers see all the, the the money that's going to be flowing out of pockets, they might change their minds. You know what I mean? And say like we want to be back in the European Union because I can't see Britain subsidising the way Europe used to subsidise them. You know what I mean? Growing up, it's strange, isn't it? Because I'm twenty four. No other country in the world's really like that. And you try and explain it to people outside of the country, you're like, wait, you guys are the same, aren't you? And you're like, kind of, but not really. So I'd love to see United Ireland. Nothing the things me off. Like Huey mentioned, Brexit's going to be extremely interesting. See what happens post-Brexit. Brexit even goes ahead. If England managed to get it together. United Ireland, it's important. Uniting the country couldn't be more important, you know? How long would you give us? I'd say... In the next ten years you'll see United Ireland.
2: Yeah.
1: So as you can hear, Tim, for the most ardent supporters of United Ireland they have expected to happen and they expect it to happen soon.
0: But, of course, things aren't quite that simple. For one thing, a
1: united Ireland would entail enormous practical implications, right? Absolutely. Like, there are huge questions. So if it were to happen, Ireland would have to change its constitution. So uh. it would absorb a huge number of British citizens and the constitution currently doesn't give equal rights to British citizens as Irish citizens. So they can't vote for president, for example, and like loads of other things. So that would have to be adjusted. And that's only one example. Okay, yeah. A lot of these details were outlined in a report by the Irish parliamentary committee on the Good Friday Agreement. Um, this is another telling thing. In response to Brexit, it started to examine the question of United Ireland and you know how, what the practical steps it would take to actually go towards it. And that report noted that it was important to get the details right before the referendum, not after, kind of taking their cue from Brexit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Missed a trick there, UK. Uh-huh. Um,
1: well, anyway, it, it noted this report noted that there are implications right through the constitution. Um, like another example is that our state gives a very important place to the Irish language. Like there's an Irish mm. language requirement for primary school teachers, and you know it's compulsory for students in school. That compulsory Irish could well be challenged because it could be discriminatory to these new citizens. That was That's something that would have to be considered.
0: Okay, and of course we know how sensitive the Irish language can be in Northern Ireland. Uh, um, it's a sticking point at the moment in why there is currently no ruling assembly uh, whether to yeah. allow for an Irish ha- Language Act. Uh, but that's only the start, right? I mean, the Irish Language Act seems like small potatoes when you consider that the North currently benefits from healthcare that is free at the point of use the nhs of course which uh, people in britain are very proud of mm. uh, whereas in the republic you have to pay for your doctor's appointment when you show up i think it's like 50 or 60 euros which is something that you hear repeatedly from people in northern ireland as an argument against unification
1: yeah i've heard it myself and there would also have to be a big debate about our national symbols and whether they would represent this you know whole island like our national anthem for example which is in irish of course and the flag.
5: Happy birthday flag. Mm.
0: Um, and of course that that is a, a little bit ironic considering that the flag is built around the idea of representing the green and the white and the orange together.
1: Exactly. Like it's quite sad but uh, you know plenty of unionists might not know that meaning or it might not be the primary meaning for them. Their primary association with that flag might be its use by Republicans and militants. Mm. So if they you know are to feel like they belong in this united Ireland which would be completely necessary for it to work you might need a big gesture, like South Africa did.
0: Naomi, you might remember from our season one finale that we heard from the guys over at the Northern Irish Fly By Those Nets podcast. Mm-hmm. And at the time, they actually did bring up the complications around a potential United Ireland, both in practical terms and in terms of complex identities. So um, let's take a listen to what they had to say.
6: I, I chose the Irish passport. It seemed like a nicer kind of decision. But at the same time, like I see myself as like a Northern Irish British citizen. <laughs> the institutions of... a f- affection, to use that term. Like when I look at what I love about the country, I see England or the UK as a country with like a really good uh, tradition on like the left or a kind of like a good progressive <laughs> liberal country. Even f- every now and again they vote Tory. The Republic of Ireland is more economically and con- uh, socially conservative than the majority of the United Kingdom. It probably shares more in common with kind of the Tory shires in terms of its kind of economic policy and outlook. As a Northern Irish person from a, uh, traditionally like nationalist background, what I wanted actually join this version of Ireland?
4: I grew up that kind of that culture of BBC and all the rest of it, and Coronation Street uh, in Belfast. But I think you know I've always considered myself Irish. My family very much considered themselves Irish. I've always had an Irish passport. I've I have family in Dublin. So, but at the same time, whenever I considered university, there was just always always this idea of automatic i look towards uh, UK universities as opposed to an inward look towards say in UIG in Galway. This again this idea of you know being part of something more interesting, more dynamic. It was very much in in the UK and on, on, in, in the to Britain.
7: I would have grown up Protestant family in a Protestant part of East Belfast, largely Unionist. I would be uncomfortable saying I'm, I'm Irish or nationalist in that way, politically, but romantically the notions of the island of Ireland itself is far more appealing than anything British. Since leaving Northern Ireland I would definitely introduce myself as Irish just because it's easier to get drinks uh, from nice Americans who just have some romantic notions of the, the Emerald Isle. My main exposure to people from the Republic public has been in France actually. I worked in a in a campsite in the French countryside and I was best mates with a girl from Cork and she would have made all these jokes about the black north and how she'd never actually crossed the border and uh, how they would run around the garden in Cork playing IRA which I think was like a weird game of chases. but uh, the, the good guys were the IRA and the bad guys were the Brits and I was just like shocked that this is this level of disconnect. Any of these ideas about like well what would a United Ireland look like it kind of got into a, that would be the day when our sectarian politics would be finished and uh, everyone would just decide that we all want to be part of ireland and that'd be grand and that's why it seems so impossible but there's like a version of it i think it might have been Neil martin was saying how northern ireland would still exist if there was a united ireland it would have there would probably still be a devolved government at stormont like once you start thinking about that it's, it is it's it's how would it even work but it's like northern ireland wouldn't disappear overnight there would still be unionists who want to keep their links to Britain, but they wouldn't get to be called Unionists anymore because it would be a united Ireland, and you would have the Nationalists would become the new Unionists. This little northern corner of Ireland would still be a separate thing, but it would report
4: to Dublin instead of London. Well, for me, I think we're living and working in Dublin right now. I, I try and have conversations with uh, some of my colleagues in work. I'm, I'm from the North, I'm the Nordy. I don't think there's a like sense of apathy. I just think that I think we're okay with North being the North or being Northern Ireland. And I think there's still a sense of ambiguity towards this idea of United Ireland. But then sometimes I've had conversations and people are talking about, you know, reclaiming the north and why wouldn't you want to have a United Ireland? It's like, well, you know, what kind of plan do you have? I mean, uh, it's only really Sinn Féin have really talked about an actual, some sort of, like a genuine concrete plan for United Ireland. But even then, it's, it's only really Sinn Féin are pushing that.
6: Would you would you not think that we already have like a United Ireland under the EU? The fact that like, you know, you could, everyone was automatically a citizen of both countries. It's kind of, I felt like it was like a really nice Deal, even if it was like ideologically impure. And like, I'm kind of sad The time for taking sides is kind of coming. Like, it's the shared custody thing where it's like, uh, this challenge is like the identity of both sides. I'm not quite sure like if anyone actually wants anything. I'm pretty certain that politicians in the UK don't want Northern Ireland. In terms of like their rhetoric, they want Scotland. When they talk about Northern Ireland, it's always a more muted language. It's, I think they were just like waiting for like the border pole to eventually kind of, you know, be triggered at some point. And so like that, I think that's quite sad actually. But I kind of like the, you know, having my cake and eating it, but, you know, the time for cake is gone. So even in that segment, we can see that opinions vary quite
0: a bit about this. And even in the Republic, some people are still very reticent about the prospect of unification. Uh, so Naomi, let's take a look at what the polls exactly say on the matter.
1: Okay, I'll do Northern Ireland first. Um, so there's been a series of polls on this by a company called Lucid Talks, and they, the way they work essentially is they gather together about 2,000 people reflecting the demographic makeup of Northern Ireland. The general trend is that a majority, above 60%, believe board border poll or a referendum on a united ireland should be held in the next five to ten years there's also though a minority of just under one in five people who believe there should never be a border poll so we can kind Mm -hmm. of think of them as like the hardcore unionists who are just total refuseniks on the entire idea of a united ireland they you Mm -hmm. know that group poses a conundrum for the whole project because there's the question of like how far would they go to resist a united ireland
0: so where does support for a united ireland stand now
1: as it stands all the polls show a majority support um for northern ireland remaining in the uk and the margin of that is something around 60 to 40 percent however however when you factor in brexit that changes
0: Uh aha i see
1: yes so if you change the question and you say would you vote to stay in the uk if there was a hard brexit then support for leaving increases substantially and particularly prone to changing their vote are this middle group so people who aren't strongly affiliated kind of orange or green they're kind of the middle ground that group tends to be very pro-eu and they're prepared to back a United Ireland, many of them, if Brexit goes awry.
0: Okay, wow.
1: Yes. And even, it even according to Lucid Talks, about one in 10 unionists are prepared to change their vote too.
0: Oh my, Wow, okay.
1: Another interesting factor is that the results show the same demographic pattern that we see again and again in polling in Northern Ireland. A United Ireland has majority support among the 18 to 44 groups, so among the young. That's reflected across polling, which also tends to show that unionism is aging. Mm. Nationalism is in a clear majority among the young and there's a growing group as well of the kind of unaffiliated or middle ground voters. Okay. okay. Lucid Talk also found that there was an absolutely clear majority support for Northern Ireland remaining in the customs union and single market, so a very soft Brexit or special status in the EU.
0: Oh that's interesting okay so according to that then the DUP who are pushing for a hard Brexit they they aren't representative at all of public opinion in Northern Ireland.
1: Not in the least like the hard Brexit that the DUP are advocating only has the support of a small minority.
0: So in the the Republic of Ireland, there always has been a majority support for United Ireland, right? So how has Brexit played with that in that context?
1: In December, a poll showed that since the Brexit negotiations went sour over the border issue, support for United Ireland had increased significantly. Mm. So the Ireland Thinks poll showed that 60% would back United Ireland even if it costs the Republic of Ireland an extra 9 billion euro a year to finance. Casual 9 billion euro there. (laughs) No price on a United Ireland. Um, Just for comparison, um, Ireland spends around double that in health expenditure every year.
0: But okay, so how do things stand then in the political situation right now?
1: There has been drama. So if you've tuned out um, of the whole, you know, Brexit saga, and I don't blame you if you have, there was a great (laughs) kerfuffle lately because the EU produced a draft which provoked a huge hue and cry, you know, among, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, some politicians and even some journalists and prompted them even to claim that the EU was trying to annex Northern Ireland, bizarrely.
0: (laughs) Of course, listeners, you might remember that this all goes back to December when the Tories had essentially promised to do three things that couldn't all be true at the same time. We looked at this in our season one finale. So those three things were, they promised there would be no hard border on the island of Ireland, but they also promised that there would be no customs border in the sea, and they promised that the whole UK was nevertheless still leaving the customs union and single market.
2: Yeah,
1: there are three things that can't all be true, it's impossible. The British government used to insist that the magical solution would be uh, this magic trade deal or technology that would just make it miraculously possible for all these things to be true at the same time, but they never actually produced any anything except for rhetoric supporting that. So the December agreement said, okay, um, just in case, you know, these um, the magic solution doesn't appear, um, <laughs> Northern Ireland will have regulatory alignment with the Republic of Ireland in things that are necessary to avoid a border appearing.
0: Okay, so this is a backstop solution just just in case that pigs cannot in, in fact fly.
1: Yeah, the development that's happened in the last week or so is basically that this Uh, agreement of December has been translated into a legal text um, that says, okay, okay, so regulatory alignment, that means this, that means one regulatory zone, farming and environmental regulations of the EU would apply in Northern Ireland, and so on, going through all the areas that would have to have the same regulations in order to avoid a border.
0: But if there was regulatory alignment on the island of Ireland, would that mean that there were checks between Northern Ireland and Britain?
1: It does if it leaves the Single Market and Customs Union. So the EU acknowledged that London had promised there would be no barriers between Northern Ireland and Britain, but it said, that's up to you guys. Like, that's an internal UK affair. Um, Mm. And, you know, we're not going to have any say on how that would be achieved. Uh, They don't see how it could be. And it's worth saying as well that Northern Ireland is already differentiated from Britain in many ways. So there are already checks on agricultural food products between Northern Ireland and Britain, because the island of Ireland is already one single unit for veterinary health, because you just the border mm. region like you just can't stop um, you know, animal diseases from spreading there. They don't respect political boundaries. Imagine. And also, of course, Northern Ireland. You know, it has devolved powers, plenty of them, and plenty of differing laws on all kinds of things.
0: Sure. Most famously, perhaps, on same-sex marriage. Yeah. For, for instance.
1: One example. Yeah. And mm. even though the DUP and London had already agreed to the principles of this document, nevertheless, the legal text was greeted greeted with huge drama when the when the details were kind of spelled out. Um, okay.
0: So here we here we all are. <laughs> what on earth are our options now for the future.
1: So to find that out I spoke to Katie Hayward who is a political sociologist in Queen's University Belfast and she told me that the reaction to this EU draft was completely split in Northern Ireland. So nationalists tended to react with relief essentially and unionists were kind of terrified because there was this talk coming out of London of annexation and all this and you know that it would have some kind of implication for Northern Ireland's status in the UK which she stressed this was not under question this has nothing to do with Northern Ireland being in the UK or not
2: The language and rhetoric of the British government has been quite unhelpful because if you say anything as disrupting the constitution of the UK and particularly Northern Ireland's place in it It puts Unionists in a very difficult position because they then feel feel as though the Union is under threat and it really is not under threat by any bespoke arrangements for Northern Ireland because the baseline is Northern Ireland is already in a distinct position as a result of devolution and as a result of the 98 agreement. If you bring back to the fore, the Irish border is a contested issue and you have Ireland on one side of the table and the British government on the other, then of course you're going to reignite tensions between unionism and nationalism if you frame it as being a choice between being closer to Ireland or to Britain. So it makes it very difficult to have an evidence-based, rational, pragmatic approach to the Irish border, such as we need.
1: Hayward told me that in her analysis there are basically two options. So either there were bespoke arrangements for Northern Ireland to avoid a border, and that means keeping regulatory alignment in many areas with the Republic of Ireland, Or there is the nuclear option, the Brexit walkout, the no deal. So this has been touted by the most hardcore Brexiteers, but it's not something that's really happened before in history. So no one really knows what would happen except that it would be chaos. So Hayward explained that this would mean an instant border would have to be drawn across the island of Ireland. And we would be back to the days of approved roads and unapproved roads. All traders would have to fill out paperwork to cross the border and customs people from both jurisdictions would have to be there waiting at checkpoints on the roads to check that they'd done this paperwork and it just would be chaos.
2: That's the worst case scenario. That would be very bad because of what we know would happen and what we don't know. You have to enforce a customs border. You don't have a choice about that. People who haven't in the past ever needed to fill in a customs declaration and they're all expected, required to do so, and they won't be able to cross the border unless they have the necessary paperwork completed. I mean, you can just see how it would end up quite, uh, quite chaotic. You have to have some roads that are approved for the movement of goods that are eligible for customs control and then unapproved roads. And you'll have to have customs officials from the south and from the north at that border. I mean, it's just... It's almost inconceivable. And I think that's part of the problem is that we sort of look at it and think there's no way we can can conceive of that happening. Mm. But that is what would be expected, and we wouldn't
0: have a choice. So all this talk from the UK government about technological solutions or a free trade deal that would mean that the border remained invisible—what uh, should we be making of that? How seriously should we be taking it right now?
1: Not at all. Like rest assured that this is this talk is completely unfounded. Like technological solutions can only speed up checks at the border; they can't eliminate the need for them altogether. And not being in a customs union together means there has to be a border for for goods to be checked because there there's going to be tariffs on some of them coming in so there's just no other choice and and by the way the UK has really terrible form on adopting border technology like it tried to bring in an e-border system and it was a complete disaster that went on for years and years and cost hundreds of millions all spent to no avail but anyway Ireland and therefore the EU is not going to accept a deal that causes a border and that was laid out right at the beginning of the negotiation.
0: Okay, God, what a mess.
1: Yes. And Tim Hayward might have some hard words for us too, for talking about a United Ireland at all. Because in her view, you know, a deal can only be reached if everyone just like cools off (laughs) and stops talking about annexation and stops talking about a United Ireland and literally sticks to the technocratic solutions that would allow Northern Ireland to just keep the status quo with minimum disruption
2: idea about the united ireland being more likely now i can see why that's come about but actually it's really wrong-headed thinking you know we see from the result of the brexit referendum all the anxiety caused all the difficulties caused by imposing a particular interpretation of a majority referendum on northern ireland with apparently little regard for the implications for a portion of the population in northern ireland so, if you do the same thing with a border poll, so essentially if you impose uh, a fairly crude reading of a, a referendum and then force Northern Ireland into a different relationship with the South, again, you're just creating a new problem. That's the genius of the 98 agreement. It never resolved the border issue. It said normalised constitutional things could change in the future. But essentially, it tried to deal with the border in a depoliticised, pragmatic way. And that's why we need to, we need to concentrate on that depoliticisation of the border issue of, of pragmatism and of what's in the interest of Northern Ireland. If we going find any way out
1: of this at all so there you have it
0: I have to say though it seems like for a party whose main aim was to keep Northern Ireland in the UK the DUP have really gambled on this one haven't they uh, like the, the Brexit policy that they backed as a minority in Northern Ireland has revived the question of a united Ireland and seems to make a united Ireland more attractive to the middle ground like you said yeah
1: they've kind of succeeded where many nationalists have failed like oh. and they've completely backed themselves into a corner so the Brexit camp in London are now forced to choose between keeping Northern Ireland like the status quo or the hard Brexit that they want. And the DUP's whole ace card you know, their their strongest ace they have to play is collapsing the government in Westminster. And that would risk an election that could bring into power the opposition, uh-huh. which is, of course, led by Jeremy Corbyn, whose voice we heard in the beginning and is a longtime supporter of a united Ireland.
0: OK, all right. and right. We've been seeing more and more that if you ask Brexiteers what they want more, Brexit or to keep Northern Ireland in the UK, the answer for a lot of them seems to be Brexit. And mm-hmm. that's been coming out quite a lot lately.
1: We kind of call this Daily Mail Republicanism. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, and one particular Brexit supporter articulated it recently enough. That is the polemicist Katie Hopkins. I'm sure our listeners have heard of her before. Katie Hopkins describes herself as a supporter of the DUP, but here is a direct quote from one of her recent tweets. She wrote, Respectfully, I have said for a long time, the answer is a unified Ireland. We'll
1: have to leave the last word to that most unlikely of Republicans.
0: <laughs> okay, all right. Don't forget, guys, you can tweet us at, at Passport Irish, and we are also on Facebook, our lovely Facebook page.
1: And if you like the podcast, please do leave us a review, share it with friends and subscribe to make sure not to miss an episode.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and listen out for our brand new episodes to come. Bye-bye now.
1: Hi, it's Naomi again. I'd like to give a shout out to those who donated on our website www.theirishpassport.com to help with the making of this podcast. Thanks in particular to Marion Littler, Gregory Heidelberger, Alexandra Colley, Bill Tolan and Charlotte Carlin. You too can support us on our website or become one of our Patreon supporters and get access to exclusive extra content on www.patreon.com forward slash Passport.